Chapter Twenty Three of Capital Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Seven: The Accumulation of Capital. The conversion of a sum of money into a means of production and labor power is the first step taken by the quantum of value that is going to function as capital. This conversion takes place in the market, within the sphere of circulation. The second step, the process of production, is complete so soon as the means of production have been converted into commodities whose value exceeds that of their component parts, and therefore contains the capital originally advanced, plus a surplus value. These commodities must then be thrown into circulation. They must be sold, their value realized in money, this money afresh converted into capital, and so over and over again. This circular movement, in which the same phases are continually gone through in succession, forms the circulation of capital. The first condition of accumulation is that the capitalist must have contrived to sell his commodities and to reconvert into capital the greater part of the money so received. In the following pages we shall assume that capital circulates in its normal way. The detailed analysis of the process will be found in Book 2. The capitalist who produces surplus value, that is, who extracts unpaid labor directly from the laborers and fixes it in commodities, is indeed the first appropriator, but by no means the ultimate owner of this surplus value. He has to share it with capitalists, with landowners, etc., who fulfill other functions in the complex of social production. Surplus value, therefore, splits up into various parts. Its fragments fall to various categories of persons, and take various forms, independent the one of the other, such as profit, interest, merchant's profit, rent, etc. It is only in Book Three that we can take in hand these modified forms of surplus value. On the one hand, then, we assume that the capitalist sells at their value the commodities he has produced, without concerning ourselves either about the new forms that capital assumes while in the sphere of circulation, or about the concrete conditions of reproduction hidden under these forms. On the other hand, we treat the capitalist producer as owner of the entire surplus value, or, better perhaps, as the representative of all the sharers with him in the booty. We therefore, first of all, consider accumulation from an abstract point of view that is, as a mere phase in the actual process of production. So far as accumulation takes place, the capitalist must have succeeded in selling his commodities and in reconverting the sale money into capital. Moreover, the breaking up of surplus value into fragments neither alters its nature nor the conditions under which it becomes an element of accumulation. Whatever be the proportion of surplus value which the industrial capitalist retains for himself, or yields up to others, he is the one who, in the first instance, appropriates it. We, therefore, assume no more than what actually takes place. On the other hand, the simple, fundamental form of the process of accumulation is obscured by the incident of the circulation which brings it about, and by the splitting up of surplus value. An exact analysis of the process, therefore, demands that we should, for a time, disregard all phenomena that hide the pity of its inner mechanism. Chapter 23 Simple Reproduction Whatever the form of the process of production in a society, it must be a continuous process, must continue to go periodically through the same phases. A society can no more cease to produce than it can cease to consume. 
when viewed therefore as a connected whole and as flowing on with incessant renewal every social process of production is at the same time a process of reproduction the conditions of production are also those of reproduction no society can go on producing in other words no society can reproduce unless it constantly reconverts a part of its products into means of production or elements of fresh products all other circumstances remaining the same the only mode by which it can reproduce its wealth and maintain it at one level is by replacing the means of production i e the instruments of labour the raw material and the auxiliary substances consumed in the course of the year by an equal quantity of the same kind of articles these must be separated from the mass of the yearly products and thrown afresh into the process of production hence a definite portion of each year's product belongs to the domain of production destined for productive consumption from the very first this portion exists for the most part in the shape of articles totally unfitted for individual consumption if production be capitalistic in form so too will be reproduction just as in the former the labor process figures but as a means towards the self-expansion of capital so in the latter it figures but as a means of reproducing as capital that is as self-expanding value the value advanced it is only because his money constantly functions as capital that the economic guise of a capitalist attaches to a man if for instance a sum of one hundred pounds has this year been converted into capital and produced a surplus value of twenty pounds it must continue during next year and subsequent years to repeat the same operation as a periodic increment of the capital advanced or periodic fruit of capital in process surplus value acquires the form of a revenue flowing out of capital footnote mais ces riches qui consomment le produit du travail des autres ne peuvent les obtenir que par des échanges s'ils donnent cependant leurs richesses acquises et accumulées en retour contre ces produits nouveaux qui sont l'objet de leur fantaisie ils semblent exposés à épuiser bientôt le fonds de réserve ils ne travaillent point avons-nous dit et ils ne peuvent mettre travailler on croirait donc que chaque jour doit voir diminuer leur vieille richesse et que lorsqu'il ne leur en restera plus rien ne sera offert en échange aux ouvriers qui travaillent exclusivement pour eux mais dans l'ordre social la richesse a acquis la propriété de se reproduire par le travail d'autrui et sans que son propriétaire y concourt la richesse comme le travail et par le travail donne un fruit annuel qui peut être détruit chaque année sans que le riche en devienne plus pauvre ce fruit est le revenu qui naît du capital c'est ce dit nouvel principe d'économie politique paris 1819 volume 1 page 81 and 82 and footnote if this revenue serve the capitalist only as a fund to provide for his consumption and be spent as periodically as it is gained then caterus paribus simple reproduction will take place and although this reproduction is a mere repetition of the process of production on the old scale yet this mere repetition or continuity gives a new character to the process or rather causes the disappearance of some apparent characteristics which it possessed as an isolated discontinuous process the purchase of labour-power for a fixed period is the prelude to the process of production and this prelude is constantly repeated when the stipulated term comes to an end when a definite period of production such as a week or a month has elapsed 
but the laborer is not paid until after he has expended his labor power and realized in commodities not only its value but surplus value he has therefore produced not only surplus value which we for the present regard as a fund to meet the private consumption of the capitalist but he has also produced before it flows back to him in the shape of wages the fund out of which he himself is paid the variable capital and his employment lasts only so long as he continues to reproduce this fund hence that formula of the economists referred to in chapter eighteen which represents wages as a share in the product itself footnote Quote, wages as well as profits are to be considered each of them as really a portion of the finished product End quote. Ramsey, Loco Citato, page 142. Quote, the share of the product which comes to the laborer in the form of wages. End quote. J. Mill, Element, etc. Translated by Parisot, Paris, 1823, page 34. End footnote. What flows back to the laborer in the shape of wages is a portion of the product that is continuously reproduced by him. The capitalist, it is true, pays him in money, but this money is merely the transmuted form of the product of his labor. While he is converting a portion of the means of production into products, a portion of his former product is being turned into money. It is his labor of last week or of last year that pays for his labor power this week or this year. The illusion begotten by the intervention of money vanishes immediately if, instead of taking a single capitalist and a single laborer, we take the class of capitalists and the class of laborers as a whole. The capitalist class is constantly giving to the laboring class order notes in the form of money on a portion of the commodities produced by the latter and appropriated by the former. The laborers give these order notes back just as constantly to the capitalist class, and in this way get their share of their own product. The transaction is veiled by the commodity form of the product and the money form of the commodity. Variable capital is therefore only a particular historical form of appearance of the fund for providing the necessaries of life, or the labor fund which the laborer requires for the maintenance of himself and family, and which, whatever be the system of social production, he must himself produce and reproduce. If the labor fund constantly flows to him in the form of money that pays for his labor, it is because the product he has created moves constantly away from him in the form of capital. But all this does not alter the fact that it is the laborer's own labor realized in a product which is advanced to him by the capitalist. Footnote. Quote, when capital is employed in advancing to the workman his wages, it adds nothing to the funds for the maintenance of labor. End quote. Casanova, in note to his edition of Malthus' Definitions in Political Economy, London, 1853, page 22. End footnote. Let us take a peasant liable to do compulsory service for his lord. He works on his own land with his own means of production for, say, three days a week. The three other days he does forced work on the lord's domain. He constantly reproduces his own labor fund, which never, in his case, takes the form of a money payment for his labor, advanced by another person. But in return, his unpaid forced labor for the lord, on its side, never acquires the character of voluntary paid labor. If one fine morning the lord appropriates to himself the land, the cattle, the seed, in a word, the means of production of this peasant, the latter will thenceforth be obliged to sell his labor power to the lord. He will, caterus paribus, labor six days a week as before, three for himself, three for his lord, who thenceforth becomes a wages-paying capitalist. 
as before he will use up the means of production as means of production and transfer their value to the product as before a definite portion of the product will be devoted to reproduction but from the moment that the forced labor is changed into wage labor from that moment the labor fund which the peasant himself continues as before to produce and reproduce takes the form of a capital advanced in the form of wages by the lord the bourgeois economist whose narrow mind is unable to separate the form of appearance from the thing that appears shuts his eyes to the fact that it is but here and there on the face of the earth that even nowadays the labor fund crops up in the form of capital footnote Quote, the wages of labor are advanced by capitalists in the case of less than one-fourth of the laborers of the earth. Richard Jones, Textbook of Lectures on the Political Economy of Nations, Hertford, 1852, page 36. Variable capital, it is true, only then loses its character of a value advanced out of the capitalists' funds when we view the process of capitalist production in the flow of its constant renewal footnote quote, though the manufacturer that is the laborer has his wages advanced to him by his master he in reality costs him no expense the value of these wages being generally reserved together with a profit in the improved value of the subject upon which his labor is bestowed a smith Locusiteto, book two chapter three page three hundred eleven and footnote but that process must have had a beginning of some kind from our present standpoint it therefore seems likely that the capitalist once upon a time became possessed of money by some accumulation that took place independently of the unpaid labor of others and that this was therefore how he was enabled to frequent the market as a buyer of labor power however this may be the mere continuity of the process the simple reproduction brings about some other wonderful changes which affect not only the variable but the total capital if a capital of one thousand pounds beget yearly a surplus value of two hundred pounds and if this surplus value be consumed every year it is clear that at the end of five years the surplus value consumed will amount to five times two hundred pounds or the one thousand pounds originally advanced if only a part say one half were consumed the same result would follow at the end of ten years since ten times one hundred pounds is one thousand pounds general rule the value of the capital advanced divided by the surplus value annually consumed gives the number of years or reproduction periods at the expiration of which the capital originally advanced has been consumed by the capitalist and has disappeared the capitalist thinks that he is consuming the produce of the unpaid labor of others that is the surplus value and is keeping intact his original capital but what he thinks cannot alter facts after the lapse of a certain number of years the capital value he then possesses is equal to the sum total of the surplus value appropriated by him during those years and the total value he has consumed is equal to that of his original capital it is true he has in hand a capital whose amount has not changed and of which a part that is the buildings machinery etc were already there when the work of his business began but what we have to do with here is not the material elements but the value of the capital when a person gets through all his property by taking upon himself debts equal to the value of that property, it is clear that his property represents nothing but the sum total of his debts. And so it is with the capitalist. When he has consumed the equivalent of his original capital, the value of his present capital represents nothing but the total amount of the surplus value appropriated by him without payment. Not a single atom of the value of his old capital continues to exist. 
apart then from all accumulation, the mere continuity of the process of production, in other words, simple reproduction, sooner or later, and of necessity, converts every capital into accumulated capital, or capitalized surplus value. Even if that capital was originally acquired by the personal labor of its employer, it sooner or later becomes value-appropriated without an equivalent, the unpaid labor of others materialized either in money or in some other object. We saw in chapters 4 to 6 that in order to convert money into capital, something more is required than the production and circulation of commodities. We saw that on the one side the possessor of value or money, on the other the possessor of the value-creating substance, on the one side the possessor of the means of production and subsistence, on the other the possessor of nothing but labor-power, must confront one another as buyer and seller. The separation of labor from its product, of subjective labor-power from the objective conditions of labor, was therefore the real foundation in fact, and the starting point of capitalist production. But that which at first was but a starting point becomes, by the mere continuity of the process, by simple reproduction, the peculiar result, constantly renewed and perpetuated, of capitalist production. On the one hand, the process of production incessantly converts material wealth into capital, into means of creating more wealth and means of enjoyment for the capitalist. On the other hand, the laborer, on quitting the process, is what he was on entering it, a source of wealth, but devoid of all means of making that wealth his own. Since, before entering on the process, his own labor has already been alienated from himself by the sale of his labor power, has been appropriated by the capitalist and incorporated with capital, it must, during the process, be realized in a product that does not belong to him. Since the process of production is also the process by which the capitalist consumes labor power, the product of the laborer is incessantly converted, not only into commodities, but into capital, into value that sucks up the value-creating power, into means of subsistence that buy the person of the laborer, into means of production that command the producers. Footnote. Quote, this is a remarkably peculiar property of productive labor. Whatever is productively consumed is capital, and it becomes capital by consumption. End quote. James Mill, Loco Citato, page 242. James Mill, however, never got on the track of this remarkably peculiar property. End footnote. The laborer, therefore, constantly produces material, objective wealth, but in the form of capital, of an alien power that dominates and exploits him, and the capitalist as constantly produces labor-power, but in the form of a subjective source of wealth, separated from the objects in and by which it can alone be realized. In short, he produces the laborer, but as a wage-laborer. Footnote. Quote, it is true, indeed, that the first introducing a manufacturer employs many poor, but they cease not to be so, and the continuance of it makes many. End quote. Reasons for a Limited Exportation of Wool, London, 1677, page 19. Quote, the farmer now absurdly asserts that he keeps the poor. They are indeed kept in misery. End quote. Reasons for the late increase of the poor rates, or a comparative view of the prices of labor and provisions. London, 1777, page 31. End footnote. This incessant reproduction, this perpetuation of the laborer, is the sine qua non of capitalist production. The laborer consumes in a twofold way. While producing, he consumes by his labor the means of production, and converts them into products with a higher value than that of the capital advanced. This is his productive consumption. 
it is at the same time consumption of his labour-power by the capitalist who bought it. On the other hand, the labourer turns the money paid to him for his labour-power into means of subsistence. This is his individual consumption. The labourer's productive consumption and his individual consumption are therefore totally distinct. In the former he acts as the motive power of capital, and belongs to the capitalist. In the latter he belongs to himself, and performs his necessary vital functions outside the process of production. The result of the one is that the capitalist lives, of the other that the labourer lives. When treating of the working day, we saw that the labourer is often compelled to make his individual consumption a mere incident of production. In such a case, he supplies himself with necessaries in order to maintain his labour-power, just as coal and water are supplied to the steam-engine and oil to the wheel. His means of consumption in that case are the mere means of consumption required by a means of production. His individual consumption is directly productive consumption. This, however, appears to be an abuse not essentially appertaining to capitalist production. Footnote. Rossi would not declaim so emphatically against this had he really penetrated the secret of productive consumption. End footnote. The matter takes quite another aspect when we contemplate not the single capitalist and the single labourer, but the capitalist class and the labouring class, not an isolated process of production, but capitalist production in full swing, and on its actual social scale. By converting part of his capital into labour-power, the capitalist augments the value of his entire capital. He kills two birds with one stone. He profits not only by what he receives from, but by what he gives to the labourer. The capital given in exchange for labour-power is converted into necessaries by the consumptions of which the muscles, nerves, bones, and brains of existing labourers are reproduced, and new labourers are begotten. Within the limits of what is strictly necessary, the individual consumption of the working class is, therefore, the reconversion of the means of subsistence given by capital in exchange for labour-power, into fresh labour-power at the disposal of capital for exploitation. It is the production and reproduction of that means of production so indispensable to the capitalist, the labourer himself. The individual consumption of the labourer, whether it proceed within the workshop or outside it, whether it be part of the process of production or not, forms therefore a factor of the production and reproduction of capital, just as cleaning machinery does, whether it be done while the machinery is working or while it is standing. The fact that the labourer consumes his means of subsistence for his own purposes, and not to please the capitalist, has no bearing on the matter. The consumption of food by a beast of burden is nonetheless a necessary factor in the process of production, because the beast enjoys what it eats. The maintenance and reproduction of the working class is, and must ever be, a necessary condition to the reproduction of capital. But the capitalist may safely leave its fulfilment to the labourer's instincts of self-preservation and of propagation. All the capitalist cares for is to reduce the labourer's individual consumption as far as possible to what is strictly necessary, and he is far away from imitating those brutal South Americans who force their labourers to take the more substantial rather than a less substantial kind of food. Footnote. Quote, the labourers in the mines of South America, whose daily task, the heaviest perhaps in the world, consists in bringing to the surface on their shoulders a load of metal weighing from 180 to 200 pounds, from a depth of 450 feet, live on bread and beans only. 
They themselves would prefer the bread alone for food, but their masters, who have found out that the man cannot work so hard on bread, treat them like horses and compel them to eat beans. Beans, however, are relatively much richer in bone earth, phosphate of lime, than is bread. End quote. Liebig, Locositeto, Volume 1, page 194. Note. End footnote. Hence, both the capitalist and his ideological representative, the political economist, consider that part alone of the laborer's individual consumption to be productive, which is requisite for the perpetuation of the class, and which therefore must take place in order that the capitalist may have labor power to consume. What the laborer consumes for his own pleasure beyond that part is unproductive consumption. Footnote. James Mill, Locositeto, page 238, and footnote. If the accumulation of capital were to cause a rise of wages and an increase in the laborer's consumption, unaccompanied by increase in the consumption of labor power by capital, the additional capital would be consumed unproductively. Footnote. Quote, if the price of labor should rise so high that, notwithstanding the increase of capital, no more could be employed, I should say that such increase of capital would be still unproductively consumed. End quote. Ricardo, Locusiteto, page 163, and footnote. In reality, the individual consumption of the laborer is unproductive as regards himself, for it reproduces nothing but the needy individual. It is productive to the capitalist and to the state, since it is the production of the power that creates their wealth. Footnote. Quote, the only productive consumption, properly so called, is the consumption or destruction of wealth, he alludes to the means of production, by capitalists with a view to reproduction. The workman is a productive consumer to the person who employs him and to the state, but not strictly speaking to himself. End quote. Malthus Definitions, etc., page 30. End footnote. From a social point of view, therefore, the working class, even when not directly engaged in the labor process, is just as much an appendage of capital as the ordinary instruments of labor. Even its individual consumption is, within certain limits, a mere factor in the process of production. That process, however, takes good care to prevent these self-conscious instruments from leaving it in the lurch, for it removes their product, as fast as it is made, from their pole to the opposite pole of capital. Individual consumption provides, on the one hand, the means for their maintenance and reproduction, on the other hand, it secures by the annihilation of the necessaries of life the continued reappearance of the workman in the labor market. The Roman slave was held by fetters. The wage laborer is bound to his owner by invisible threads. The appearance of independence is kept up by means of a constant change of employers and by the fixio juris of a contract. In former times, Capital resorted to legislation, whenever necessary, to enforce its proprietary rights over the free laborer. For instance, down to 1815, the emigration of mechanics employed in machine-making was, in England, forbidden, under grievous pains and penalties. The reproduction of the working class carries with it the accumulation of skill that is handed down from one generation to another. Footnote. Quote, the only thing of which one can say that it is stored up and prepared beforehand is the skill of the laborer. The accumulation and storage of skilled labor, 
that most important operation is, as regards the great mass of labourers, accomplished without any capital whatever. End quote. Thomas Hodgkin, Labour Defended, etc. Page 13. End footnote. To what extent the capitalist reckons the existence of such a skilled class among the factors of production that belong to him by right, and to what extent he actually regards it as the reality of his variable capital, is seen so soon as a crisis threatens him with its loss. In consequence of the civil war in the United States, and of the accompanying cotton famine, the majority of the cotton operatives in Lancashire were, as is well known, thrown out of work. Both from the working class itself, and from other ranks of society, there arose a cry for state aid, or for voluntary national subscriptions, in order to enable the superfluous hands to emigrate to the colonies or to the United States. Thereupon, the Times published on the 24th of March, 1863, a letter from Edmund Potter, a former president of the Manchester Chamber of Commerce. This letter was rightly called in the House of Commons the Manufacturer's Manifesto. Footnote. Quote, that letter might be looked upon as the manifesto of the manufacturers. Ferrand, Motion on the Cotton Famine, House of Commons, 27th April, 1863. We cull here a few characteristic passages in which the proprietary rights of capital over labour power are unblushingly asserted. Quote, he, that is the man out of work, may be told the supply of cotton workers is too large, and must in fact be reduced by a third, perhaps, and that then there will be a healthy demand for the remaining two-thirds. Public opinion urges emigration. The master cannot willingly see his labour supply being removed. He may think, and perhaps justly, that it is both wrong and unsound. But if the public funds are to be devoted to assist emigration, he has a right to be heard, and perhaps to protest. End quote. Mr. Potter then shows how useful the cotton trade is, how the, quote, trade has undoubtedly drawn the surplus population from Ireland and from the agricultural districts, end quote. how immense is its extent, how in the year 1860 it yielded five out of thirteenth of the total English exports, how after a few years it will again expand by the extension of the market, particularly of the Indian market, and by calling forth a plentiful supply of cotton at six pence per pound. He then continues, quote, Some time, one, two, or three years it may be, will produce the quantity. The question I would put then is this. Is the trade worth retaining? Is it worth while to keep the machinery, he means the living labour machines, in order, and is it not the greatest folly to think of parting with that? I think it is. I allow that the workers are not a property, not the property of Lancashire and the masters, but they are the strength of both. They are the mental and trained power which cannot be replaced for a generation. The mere machinery which they work might much of it be beneficially replaced, nay improved, in a twelfth month. Footnote. It will not be forgotten that this same capital sings quite another song under ordinary circumstances when there is a question of reducing wages. Then the masters exclaim with one voice, Quote, the factory operatives should keep in wholesome remembrance the fact that theirs is really a low species of skilled labour, and that there is none which is more easily acquired, or of its quality more amply remunerated, or which, by a short training of the least expert, can be more quickly as well as abundantly acquired. The master's machinery, 
open brackets, which we now learn can be replaced with advantage in twelve months, close brackets, really plays a far more important part in the business of production than the labor and skill of the operative, open brackets, who cannot now be replaced under thirty years, close brackets, which six months' education can reach and a common laborer can learn, end quote. See Ante, page 423, end footnote. Continue, quote, Encourage or allow the working power to emigrate, and what of the capitalist? Take away the cream of the workers, and fixed capital will depreciate in a great degree, and the floating will not subject itself to a struggle with a short supply of inferior labor. We are told the workers wish it, that is, emigration. Very natural it is that they should do so. Reduce, compress the cotton trade by taking away its working power and reducing their wages expenditure, say one-fifth, or five millions, and what then would happen to the class above, the small shopkeepers, and what of the rents, the cottage rents? Trace out the effect upwards to the small farmer, the better householder, and the landowner, and say if there could be any suggestion more suicidal to all classes of the country than by enfeebling a nation by exporting the best of its manufacturing population and destroying the value of some of its most productive capital and enrichment. I advise a loan of five or six million sterling, extending it may be over two or three years, administered by special commissioners added to the boards of gardens in the cotton districts under special legislative regulations, enforcing some occupation or labor as a means of keeping up at least the moral standard of the recipients of the loan. Can anything be worse for landowners or masters than parting with the best of the workers, and demoralizing and disappointing the rest by an extended depletive emigration, a depletion of capital and value in an entire province? Potter, the chosen mouthpiece of the manufacturers, distinguishes two sorts of machinery, each of which belongs to the capitalist, and of which one stands in his factory, the other at night-time and on Sundays is housed outside the factory, in cottages. The one is inanimate, the other living. The inanimate machinery not only wears out and depreciates from day to day, but a great part of it becomes so quickly superannuated by constant technical progress that it can be replaced with advantage by new machinery after a few months. The living machinery, on the contrary, gets better the longer it lasts, and in proportion as the skill handed from one generation to another accumulates. The Times answered the cotton lord as follows. Quote, Mr. Edmund Potter is so impressed with the exceptional and supreme importance of the cotton masters that, in order to preserve this class and perpetuate their profession, he would keep half a million of the laboring class confined in a great moral workhouse against their will. Is the trade worth retaining? asks Mr. Potter. Certainly by all honest means it is, we answer. Is it worth while keeping the machinery in order? again asks Mr. Potter. Here we hesitate. By the machinery, Mr. Potter means the human machinery, for he goes on to protest that he does not mean to use them as an absolute property. We must confess that we do not think it worthwhile, or even possible, to keep the human machinery in order, that is, to shut it up and keep it oiled till it is wanted. Human machinery will rust under inaction, oil and rub it as you may. Moreover, the human machinery will, as we have just seen, get the steam up of its own accord, and burst or run amuck in our great towns. 
It might, as Mr. Potter says, require some time to reproduce the workers, but, having machinists and capitalists at hand, we could always find thrifty, hard, industrious men wherewith to improvise more master manufacturers than we can ever want. Mr. Potter talks of the trade reviving in one, two, or three years, and he asks us not to encourage or allow the working power to emigrate. Footnote. Parliament did not vote a single farthing in aid of emigration, but simply passed some acts empowering the municipal corporations to keep the operatives in a half-starved state, that is, to exploit them at less than their normal wages. On the other hand, when, three years later, the cattle disease broke out, Parliament broke wildly through its usages and voted straight off millions for indemnifying the millionaire landlords whose farmers in any event came off without loss owing to the rise in the price of meat. The bull-like bellow of the landed proprietors at the opening of Parliament in 1866 showed that a man can worship the cow Sabala without being a Hindu and can change himself into an ox without being a Jupiter. End footnote. Continuation of the Times quote. He says that it is very natural the workers should wish to emigrate, but he thinks that in spite of their desire, the nation ought to keep this half million of workers, with their seven hundred thousand dependents, shut up in the cotton districts. And as a necessary consequence, he must of course think that the nation ought to keep down their discontent by force, and sustain them by alms, and upon the chance that the cotton masters may some day want them. The time is come when the great public opinion of these islands must operate to save this working power from those who would deal with it as they would deal with iron and coal and cotton. End quote. The Times article was only a jeu d'esprit. The great public opinion was, in fact, of Mr. Potter's opinion, that the factory operatives are part of the movable fittings of a factory. Their emigration was prevented. They were locked up in that moral workhouse, the cotton districts, and they form, as before, the so-called strength of the cotton manufacturers of Lancashire. Capitalist production, therefore, of itself, reproduces the separation between labour-power and the means of labour. It thereby reproduces and perpetuates the condition for exploiting the labourer. It incessantly forces him to sell his labour-power in order to live, and enables the capitalist to purchase labour-power in order that he may enrich himself. Footnote. L'ouvrier demandait de la subsistance pour vivre, le chef demandait du travail pour gagner. Sismondi. Locusiteto, page 91. End footnote. It is no longer a mere accident that capitalist and labourer confront each other in the market as buyer and seller. It is the process itself that incessantly hurls back the labourer onto the market as a vendor of his labour power and that incessantly converts his own product into a means by which another man can purchase him. In reality, the labourer belongs to capital before he has sold himself to capital. His economic bondage is both brought about and concealed by the periodic sale of himself, by his change of masters, and by the oscillations in the market price of labour-power. Footnote on economic bondage A boorishly clumsy form of this bondage exists in the county of Durham. This is one of the few counties in which circumstances do not secure to the farmer undisputed proprietary rights over the agricultural labourer. The mining industry allows the latter some choice. In this county, the farmer, contrary to the custom elsewhere, rents only such farms as have on them labourers' cottages. The rent of the cottage is a part of the wages. These cottages are known as Heinz houses. They are let to the labourers in consideration of certain feudal services under a contract called bondage 
which, amongst other things, binds the labourer, during the time he is employed elsewhere, to leave some one, say his daughter, etc., to supply his place. The labourer himself is called a bondsman. The relationship here set up also shows how individual consumption by the labourer becomes consumption on behalf of capital, or productive consumption, from quite a new point of view. Quote, it is curious to observe that the very dung of the hind and bondsman is the perquisite of the calculating lord, and the lord will allow no privy but his own to exist in the neighbourhood, and will rather give a bit of manure here and there for a garden than bait any part of his seigneurial right. End quote. Public Health Report 7, 1864, page 188. It will not be forgotten that, with respect to the labour of children, etc., even the formality of a voluntary sale disappears. End footnote. Capitalist production, therefore, under its aspect of a continuous connected process, of a process of reproduction, produces not only commodities, not only surplus value, but it also produces and reproduces the capitalist relation, on the one side the capitalist, on the other the wage labourer. Footnote. Quote, capital presupposes wage labor, and wage labor presupposes capital. One is a necessary condition to the existence of the other. They mutually call each other into existence. Does an operative in a cotton factory produce nothing but cotton goods? No, he produces capital. He produces values that give fresh command over his labor, and that, by means of such command, create fresh values. End quote. Karl Marx, Lohnarbeit und Kapital in the Neue Rheinische Zeitung, number 266, 7th April, 1849. The articles published under the above title in the Neue Rheinische Zeitung are parts of some lectures given by me on that subject in 1847, in the German Arbeiterverein at Brussels, the publication of which was interrupted by the revolution of February. End footnote. End of part 7, chapter 23.